Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me today from New York City is former Sting guitarist and Broadway musician Jeffrey Campbell. Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, the story about you joining Sting's band in 1987 to tour his uh, second solo record, Nothing Like the Sun, is a pretty incredible story. So that story is told in great detail in your book. It's called Do Stand So Close, My Improbable Adventure as Sting's Guitarist. So uh, we were saying off air before the show started, I'm about two thirds the way through. It's, you know, full of super entertaining stories and insights. It's a great look behind the curtain. I kind of wrote it as a journal. So it's almost like an oral history of the year on the road with Sting. It's about me moving to New York. Very brief backstory, because every memoir I pick up has this long-winded backstory, 100 pages of my grandfather fought in this world war and blah, blah, blah. It's like, who cares? Let's cut to the chase. So, uh, you know, I think I'm talking about Sting by about the 13th page in my book. And uh, just a brief backstory. And it's like I moved to New York, you know, rolled the dice and just somehow, you know, got really lucky and landed this gig right out of the gate. But uh, so then you basically go around the world with me. It follows each leg of the tour. And how the glamour starts wearing off as the miles mount. And then what happens when you come home after a huge rock tour like that and have to kind of face the reality of being off the road and unemployed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. It's it's a great story. You know, I've, I brought it with me on a trip to Seattle and I, I spent, you know, the entire flight reading it. There's a lot of stuff in there. There are a lot of highlights. But what were some of the highlights for you during that world tour? Well, you know, and again, earlier in the book is where all these amazing things are happening to me. I mean, I'd come to New York to be a musician. I'd moved up here. Mm -hmm. And as I address in the book, I said, I'm going to move to New York. I was out of college and I was like, I'm going to move to New York and give it a year. I'm from North Carolina originally. And I said, let me move to New York for a year and see what happens. And as I address in the book, the eve of my one year anniversary, I was playing Madison Square Garden with Sting. So it was a crazy, crazy year. I couldn't find work when I first moved to New York. So I was actually selling candy concession stand work in Broadway theaters. <laughs> I literally had to quit the candy job to join Sting's band. And I went from selling candy at Andrew Lloyd Webber's Starlight Express to two weeks later being on Saturday Night Live with Sting. Season premiere, Steve Martin, the host. And we ended up playing Little Wing, Jimi Hendrix tune with a big guitar solo. And it's like, what a whirlwind. So Saturday Night Live was certainly a huge highlight for me. Also playing Madison Square Garden was a huge highlight. We also played my hometown of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So mm-hmm. I got to go and play in front of all my friends and family, you know, to to see people that you'd grown up with come see you on stage with Sting was quite the honor. And of course, we did the Amnesty International tour with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, mm-hmm. Peter Gabriel and Tracy Chapman. So it was a serious experience. At the end of the Amnesty tour, we were all kind of mixing and matching music, musicians. And at the very end, uh, Bruce said, yeah, come play. So I got to sit in with the E Street Band and play Twist and Shout. As I say in the book, musically, it was a mess. But as life experiences go, it was a blast. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. One, of, one of my other favorite parts of that book is uh, the fact that you were tapped to give Bon Jovi guitar lessons. Yeah. A friend of mine was playing keyboards with Bon Jovi and he called me. He'd been on the road with John and I get this phone call. He says, he kind of cryptically says to me, uh, and I, I figured it was one of John's children. And he says, no, it's John. He wants to brush up on the guitar playing. You know, it's like, as I say to people, people go, well, why does a rock star need guitar lessons? I'm like, man, everybody wants to get better. You know, mm-hmm. there's, we, there is no finish line. So, um, John and I became friends and I hung out with him and it was just amazing. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there, I talk about in the book, ending up on Sting's couch playing Message in a Bottle with Sting and then 
few years later, I'm on John Bon Jovi's couch playing uh, Wanted Dead or Alive, and I'm going, wow, New York is a, it, it was the smartest <laughs> thing I ever did moving to New York City. This would have not happened to me if I had not moved to New York. So Not bad for a kid from North Carolina. Yeah, and I said, I'll give it a year, and I'm coming up on my 32nd anniversary in New York City. So my one year has turned into 30 plus. Yeah, that's great. Well, you, you work on Broadway now. So you worked, you've worked on Mamma Mia. You've worked on the School of Rock musical. Yeah, I, uh, after I came off the road with Sting, I was hustling, trying to find work, and I was doing everything, bar bands, singer-songwriters, playing in wedding bands, and it was a real hustle. Mm-hmm. And Broadway, you know, at the time was it was kind of, you know, Broadway's had a real renaissance and it's very popular now with shows like Hamilton and uh, Dear Evan Hansen and all that. But Broadway used to kind of be a place where you could go and make a little bit of money, but it's gotten so huge. But I started doing that and um, I, I was the way you break in and I talk about it in the book, you sub on Broadway shows for the regular guy and then you make connections. And then next thing I know, I've got my own show and, you know, kind of stumbling through one show to another, which is hard to do, but, you know, a year here, a year there. And then I joined actually a show called Seussical, which was based on the books of Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. When the contractor called me, he said, uh, oh, this is guaranteed a 10 year show. This is a blockbuster. So I said, great. So I signed on board for that. And we ran six months, crashed and burned in six months, total disaster flop. Oh no. But as it was going down the drain, the conductor says to me, says, hey, I'm getting ready to do this musical based on the music of ABBA. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, sure, why not? I got nothing else to do. And of course, <laughs> that became Mamma Mia, which had a 14-year run on Broadway. It's like the eighth longest running show ever on Broadway. So, And people said, did you get sick of Dance Queen? I was like, no way. It was an honor to play those songs. And it was such a blast. So a 14-year run at Mamma Mia was an incredible blessing financially and just just an experience that, you know, making people happy with that music. So Broadway has turned into my gig. So, yeah. And I'm very happy to be off the road. The Sting Tour, touring the world is not for everybody. I mean, it's pretty grueling, as mm-hmm. you'll see, as people see in the book. But uh, uh, now I'm in the exact opposite because I actually live 10 minutes away from the theater district in Manhattan. So I don't own a car. I walk to work every day. I mean, it's just the exact opposite of touring. I mean, I barely get on the subway in New York. I just walk. Yeah. So, I live a very small town existence. I, I mean, I, I stay in my neighborhood. I go to my corner market and buy groceries fresh every day, come yeah. home, have dinner, go play the show. Because the thing about Broadway is it's 52 weeks a year. I mean, you can take time off. But mm-hmm. if you want to work, there are no seasons for it. I mean, as long as the show is running, you're working. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's quite a steady thing. And uh, some people, you know, I have certain friends that would hate the routine of Broadway, but it actually appeals to my nature. So I like the repetition of Broadway. Yeah. How, uh, how often do you work with uh, Rob Proust? Well, Rob and I, we did, I met him on Mamma Mia. So we yeah. worked together for 15 years. Then our paths across, I had a studio uh, for years. I was producing tracks and Rob would come over and play. Uh, we just recently worked on a workshop together. So I hope that we have some work coming down the pipe in the future that he and I will have another nice long run together on a new project. But to be uh, continued, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jeff, let's get into your tunes here. So you've got, okay. uh, you've got quite an assortment. Uh, your first one is uh, an early – this is from Prince's early days, I think. It's, uh, it's called Do It All Night. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's on his Dirty Mind record, which was his third album. 
I remember having his first two albums and loving them, but they're very R&B kind of soul thing. Dirty Mind came out and it just completely changed me. I'd never heard anything like it because it felt like funk music and punk music. It felt new wave yet Mm -hmm. soulful at the same time. And it was like James Brown and the Cars at the same time for me. And I've noticed as I look through the tunes I chose – I really am drawn towards the hybrid music where it's like kind of racially ambiguous. It's funky, but it's rocking. And uh, the Dirty Mind record just it blew me away. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. It's it's got a live feel. Prince plays all the instruments. He plays drums on the track and all that. So it's not quite moved into his electronic, you know, drum machine type thing. So it's still kind of got a live feel and yeah. a very sparse demo kind of feel. I actually I read an anecdote that when Prince and I, I can't track this down, but I did read this. When he delivered the tape to the label, mm-hmm. he had recorded it, not to get all geeky here, but he had recorded the record at 15 inches per second, which was considered lo-fi. Okay. And, uh, and the label said, okay, great, go back in the studio and re-record this at 30 inches per second and we'll release it. And he said, no, this is the record. So it is like a real kind of, I just love how uh, organic it feels. Oh, I didn't and, know that. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's got, like I said, and it's real direct. He, you can tell he's running his Telecaster just straight into the board. So it's not like a big ambient thing. It's a real intimate in your face funk thing, very hypersexualized, you know, which, you know, of course, now all these years later, it's nothing compared to the lyrics you hear on most rap tunes. But at the time, him getting that, even that graphic was unheard of. But I, I just remember being in a club, like in college and hearing this and going, who is that? What is that? And yeah. I, being a professional musician, I'm not like, you know, it's kind of a busman's holiday to go to a lot of concerts because you're playing all the time and all that. But I will say I saw Prince on three consecutive tours. I saw his controversy tour, his 1999 tour and his Purple Rain tour. I just I couldn't get enough of that guy. <laughs> he, I say to people and they kind of look at me sideways, but I say Prince was my Beatles. His records changed me the way you hear people say the Beatles changed them. So, wow, really? That's a yeah. that's incredible. And I just I think his 1999 album is brilliant. It's funny. I have this not to get to digress too much, but I have this theory of always the album before the big album is always my favorite because, of course, Purple Rain was Prince's, you know, masterpiece. But I thought 1999 was better. And people look at me like I'm funny. I go, but I have that theory. I thought uh, Off the Wall was better than Thriller by Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, everybody loves Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I like Fulfilling His First Finale better. So. There's always like the album before the big album, and uh, which was 1999 for Prince. But this one, Dirty Mind, great record. Yeah, I, I agree with that mindset. You know, I, I prefer you know those types of records too. And you look at uh, an artist's repertoire in terms of albums, and oftentimes it's that you know second or third record that that oftentimes are the best, just in terms of being organic. You know? Well, yeah, and, and you'll see it, whether it's Nirvana or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. success ruins these bands because yes. then they have unlimited budget to make the next big record and they get they're overwhelmed by their options. Whereas when they know they've got two weeks to get the record made and, you know, it's like, you know, of course, by the time Thriller's out, Michael Jackson has Vincent Price rapping on his records and Eddie yeah. Van Halen playing guitar. Right. And it's like that first record he did off the wall with Quincy Jones when he nobody knew him as a solo act. That was when he snuck up on everybody. And yeah. so... Uh, I like the albums before the big albums because that's when the artist is still trying to, you know, prove themselves. And it seems like it's got a little more angst in a good way to me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot more purity. Yeah. 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 
Okay, this next one, I don't I've never heard of this. This is this is Dyke and the Blazers and the song yeah. is called Let a Woman Be a Woman and a Man Be a Man. Yeah. This is an old soul tune. I mean, I don't even know if it's on an album. It was a single. When I was a kid, I would go down to a friend of mine's house and he had an older teenage sister who had a big box of 45 records, which mm-hmm. for the youngsters who don't know what 45s are, especially vinyl <laughs> singles, you know, and it's like what an MP3 was, but on vinyl. So it would just be one song and you flip it over and play the other side. And I discovered this band, Dyke and the Blazers. You know, I kind of checked in to see Dyke, I guess, actually, the guy, his name is Arlister Christian. Okay. The music's very James Brown type stuff. He wrote Funky Broadway, which was a big hit for Wilson Pickett. So Dyke or Arlister wrote Funky Broadway. Mm. Uh, but this track just always got me and it's like it reminded me of James Brown. But what I liked about it, it's more of a, a song form, whereas a lot of James Brown tunes feel like a one chord vamp where it's kind of a stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. This song, Let a Woman Be a Woman and a Man Be a Man, which who knows if that's politically correct or not. I don't even know what he means, but uh, <laughs> it's just so funky. I mean, the drum beat, the guitar part, it's to me, it's the template for a great soul R&B tune. One funny thing about it is people think they haven't heard it, but I, a few years back I was watching the Super Bowl and I heard a commercial. You know, the commercials are the big deal in Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. And I go, wow, there's Dyke and the Blazers on a Super Bowl commercial. I couldn't believe. And as I researched, it was actually a band called The Heavy, and they had a song called How You Like Me Now. Yeah. It was in 2009, and they completely sampled the Dyke and the Blazers team. No so, way. Yeah, if you go check out The Heavy – uh, a song called How You Like Me Now, it is a sample of uh, Let a Woman Be a Woman and a Man Be a Man wow. that they've fleshed out. But um, it's so funky, like I said. I mean, I've played these tunes for friends who've never heard it before, and they go, oh, I can hear you on guitar. I see where you <laughs> developed your style because it it's James Brown, but a little left of James Brown. So uh, yeah. I'd like that. I'm going to check that yeah, out for sure. Yeah, man. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, your next tune, Jimi Hendrix and Wait Until Tomorrow. Yeah. Are you familiar with that tune? Yeah, this is from Axis Bold as Love, I think, right? Yeah, and and I always it's funny, I always say to people, Axis is my favorite album by Jimmy. And you know, people think of, of course, the Are You Experience with Purple Haze and Hey Joe, and then mm-hmm. of course the Electric Ladyland. And I go, but uh, here we go again, talking about the album before the album. Hendrix, I feel like, was a little more mature and evolved by Axis, which was this second record. The songwriting's better, in my opinion. By the time you get to Electric Ladyland, it's almost like a Miles Davis record. It's real experimental and kind of jammy and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So I thought Axis had the, you know, the tunes on it, you know, uh, Little Wing and uh, If Six Was Nine. And, uh, but this tune, Wait Until Tomorrow, again, is kind of my hybrid funk rock thing. And I address this in my book because I talk about Little Wing at length because we played it on the Sting tour. But mm-hmm. Hendrix, to me, it appealed. Yeah, you know, I'd grown up listening to soul music and Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, and of course Curtis Mayfield, great rhythm guitarist. And to me, Hendrix, his rhythm playing, which is underrated or maybe not uh, given as much attention as it should. Mm-hmm. Hendrix is so soulful, and it really reminds me of Curtis Mayfield. Uh, you go listen to People Get Ready or any of those tunes. Uh, that's what Hendrix was kind of doing, you know, because he played with the Isley Brothers for a while. So he That's was an right. R&B guitarist. But then he just kind of took it and went psychedelic. So I joke in my book, I go, it was like Curtis Mayfield on acid when I heard this <laughs> stuff. And uh, it just it was psychedelic but soulful. And again, the hybrid thing. So wait until tomorrow. I love the drumming on it. Mitch Mitchell on drums, which yeah. you go back to those 60s drummers who they grew up on the big band drummers like Gene Krupa and mm-hmm. Buddy Rich and that. So it's got this kind of swingy thing to it that, you know, 
Now, in this day and age with drum machines and all that, maybe not quite as loose. So if you listen to Ginger Baker or Mitch Mitchell or Keith Moon and those guys, they really do kind of sound like big band drummers. So mm -hmm. the drumming on that Hendrix stuff with Mitch Mitchell is great. And I don't know, that, that record, it just grabbed me right from the get-go. I mean, even the artwork on the cover of the record, I don't know if you remember it, but it's just kind of like Indian image with elephants and, yeah. you know, and this kind of psychedelic thing. And I just remember staring at that album cover going, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see the movie Almost Famous? Do you know this movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's the scene where his older sister goes away to, I think, work on an airline or something. She says, I left you something under the bed. And he goes and reaches under the bed, and there's a suitcase full of albums. Mm -hmm. And he starts rubbing his hands across the album covers. And I'm pretty sure Axis is one of the albums. But mm -hmm. I remember the Who's Tommy and stuff like that. And it's like at that moment watching that movie, I just chills ran down my spine. Cause that's what I used to do. I mean, you sound like grandpa here, but it's like when you would buy the big vinyl and the album cover and the artwork and the oh, liner yeah. notes, and you'd just be mesmerized by everything about it. You know, I remember John Bon Jovi saying to me one time, he said, the problem with MP3s is I buy them and I forget that I own them because, you know, they're in the ether, you know, you don't know. Whereas when you bought an album, you knew you had that album. So that's a really good point about MP3s because I've, I've done the same thing. You know, you buy them and then they just kind of get buried in your iPod or you yeah, know, sure. your, your device. I'll do that and I'll hear a tune and, you know, and add it to a list and forget. And then also I'm listening to it and I go, what is this song? I was like, I, but boy, when you were spending your uh, allowance on vinyl back <laughs> in the day, you knew what you owned and you listened to every cut and Axis was definitely a very formative record for me. Oh yeah. I was an eighties kid. Right. So I, I did the same thing. You know, vinyl uh -huh. was just kind of going out then CDs right. were coming in later in the eighties, but that was part of the experience. You know, I talk about that on the show all the time that, yes. that that was, um, that was a significant part of the listening experience was going through the, the visual aspect of it as well. Well, and you know, the world only spins forward, so I don't spend too much time lamenting the good old days, mm -hmm. but you know, I mean, when I came up, it was all on vinyl. And to see music on TV, you had to wait till Friday or Saturday night. When MTV came along in the 80s, like, wow, I can watch music 24 hours a day. <laughs> it was just blew my mind, you know, because it was so special. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to say it was better in a certain decade or year. But, you know, there's a reason why everybody watched The Beatles and Ed Sullivan, because there was only three shows on anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so there was kind of a, a, a meeting of the minds back then due to the lack of stratification that we have now. It's like you can find your own little niche on Spotify or Apple Music and never listen to anything else. Back in the day, it was Casey Kasem's Top 40 Radio and American Bandstand and uh, yeah. Ed Sullivan. And, you know, they told you what you were going to listen to. So there was kind of more of a communal feel to it back then i think that's very true i remember that i, I discovered a couple of bands on american bandstand i used to watch that it was like saturday at one o'clock or something like that and uh i remember seeing a lot of bands that i saw prince on there actually i saw yeah, right. a night ranger for the first time on there i remember seeing shaka khan and rufus on there and they were doing tell me something good their first hit which was a stevie wonder tune actually he wrote but uh wow. i just remember saying to my friend i don't understand what i just watched <laughs> i mean shaka just she scared me. It was so soulful and deep, and the tune was so slow with the clavinet wah-wah and guitar. And I was like, wow, what was that? Because at the time, I was listening to the Allman Brothers or whatever, and I just yeah. – but I remember watching American Bandstand, Shaka Khan and Rufus. I was like, wow. <laughs> My mind was blown. <laughs> it's fun to experience stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, next up, Jeff, Humble Pie. This is a great pick. Hot and nasty. Yeah. This is – you know, I'm not uh, – 
this is just a record we listened to when we were kids, mm-hmm. and this tune has always stuck with me. It just, to me, it feels like it might be the perfect rock tune. Uh, this, the elements in it, it's got wah-wah guitar, it's got Hammond organ, acoustic mm-hmm. piano, you know, screaming vocals, and most importantly, cowbell, plenty of cowbell, <laughs> which, you know, I would put cowbell in every song if I could. I love the sound of cowbell, the the Saturday Night Live skit about more cowbell. Yeah. I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> so whether it's Honky Tonk Women or Mississippi Queen or Hot and Nasty, it's like, forget the hi-hat, hit the cowbell. That's what makes me happy. So this tune, it just... You know, and again, I don't know much about uh, Humble Pie. I didn't really, you know, I didn't listen to a lot of songs. I know Peter Frampton was originally in the band, but he had mm-hmm. left the band by this point. Yeah. And um, this song, just when I hear it, it just makes me happy. It makes my skin vibrate. And oh, yeah. I can't tell you much about Humble Pie. Actually, they're out, still on the road. A friend of mine's out on the road doing some dates with them now. So they're still around all these years later in some incarnation. But uh, wow. hot, nasty. Uh, and again, another great album cover. The Smokin' was the name of the album. The artwork was really cool, the logo. But mm-hmm. uh, that's that's worth digging through a crate and finding Hot and Nasty and listening to just how rock and roll that is. Really primal kind of rock and roll. You know, it was fun back then because you could identify all the elements. You know, now everything's so synthetic. You go, well, that's patch number 132 on this keyboard. But back then it was like cowbell, acoustic piano, organ, Leslie, you know, uh, wah-wah. With a good system, you could pick them out. That's oh true. yeah. Yeah. And, and then back then, you know, they were probably all recording at the same time in the studio. So yeah. it's bleeding to the other microphones. So a real kind of ambient rock feel that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you feel like you're at the party. You know? Yeah. This definitely had, uh, the same crunch as those, those first four faces records. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It does kind of remind me of that, uh, um, stay with me by faces, that same kind of, oh boy, this is bell bottom rock here. You know, oh, yeah. Just, these guys are wailing away with their frizzy hair and their bell bottoms on and yeah. you know, maybe a light show going behind them. And I remember being as a kid, I grew up in a college town and I would go down to the campus and see bands playing at fraternity parties at night, even when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was just completely mesmerized by the Hammond and the Leslie with the spinning speaker inside of this piece of furniture. You know, yeah. it's like, well, what is that? Well, look at that thing spinning fast and slow. And yeah. I just from an early age watching a hi-hat open and close or a Leslie spin, I was like, Oh, I'm uh, I'm doomed. And I, I've done Broadway shows where I see like little eight year old kids peering into the pit and they're looking at the instruments. I go, uh oh, there goes another one. <laughs> <laughs> another one bites the dust. <laughs> Their eyes are real big looking at all the instruments. I go, OK, mom and dad, yeah. take them to the music store. Converted. Yeah. All right. Next up, Jeff, you've got Sly and the Family Stone with Family Affair. Yeah. Uh, which was a big hit. I'm sure most people know that tune. And uh I, I did a earlier interview and they said if I could choose any band in history to be a member of. And I thought long and hard about it. And I said, I think Sly and the Family Stone. Mm. And here we are again with the recurring theme of the hybrid rock. You go look at that band. There was white people. There was black people. There was women. I mean, it was diverse, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 60s. It was, a you know, Northern California, San Francisco type thing. Horns. It had rock guitars, but R&B horn section and so Sly, and, and now I'm really thinking of the earlier stuff, like I want to take you higher and dance to the music and all that. Mm-hmm. Now, this specific tune, Family Affair, which is from his There's a Riot Going Out on album, 
it's really just him on this tune. I think I think it might be Billy Preston playing piano on it, but it's just Sly and his sister singing. But uh, he plays all the instruments and the exact opposite of what we were saying about faces or humble pie. It's all direct. It's really in your face. Mm. It's like so dry and so in your face. It reminds me of the Prince Dirty Mind record. Mm-hmm. You don't hear the room. You just the music's right there. But unlike a lot of modern music, that's over compressed. It doesn't really feel over compressed to me. It's just in your face. And very little reverb, very little delays, and kind of overdriven. The vocals are distorted. It's just so cool sounding to me. I, I went back and I was kind of, look, you know, checking out some of the history of these tunes before we got together to speak. And because uh, what what was really cool about this, it has like a programmed drum machine. I think back then they called it the rhythm machine. It was kind of sound like the kind of thing that would be on the home organ where you press down a button that says bossa nova or whatever. So it's that real kind of rhythm machine sound. But I'd read so this was the first tune that went to number one with programmed drums. So, wow, really? Yeah. But you listen to it. There's, there might be an overdub live snare drum on it, but it's basically a little loop that Sly's playing to. It's so cool sounding to me. And one thing I, I say to people a lot of times, you know, I've got a handful of tunes I think of, and I go, name a tune that if it came on the radio today, it would still fit in. It would still sound modern. A tune that's aged well, and I think this tune, Family Affair, totally is that. Yeah. I think you could put it on right beside any hip-hop record, and it would sound totally in place. Like I said, there's a handful of tunes I go, they, they, they're timeless. Uh, the other one that I, I contemplated putting on my list, but I didn't, is uh, Waterfalls by TLC. Yeah. I hear that tune, and it sounds totally modern to me. And I go, how you can make a record that's 20 years old that still sounds like I could hear it on the radio today and not flinch? Because a lot of music doesn't age well. You go, That's right. Ooh, disco or whatever you go of a time. Mm-hmm. But Family Affair to me still sounds totally modern. Yeah. So your uh, your next tune, I've never heard of this before. It's uh, Gregory Porter and Take Me to the Alley. I was completely unaware of him, too. I was a little late to the game on Gregory. And a friend had recommended Gregory to me. And He's kind of got the baritone voice. He reminds me of Bill Withers, maybe Johnny Hartman meets Bill Withers. But a friend had said, oh, yeah, you should check out Gregory Porter. So I dialed it up on Spotify, and his, his latest album was called Take Me to the Alley. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting at my desk doing paperwork, you know, emails or whatever, paying bills, and the record's just playing in the background. And all of a sudden, I just stopped, and it's like this song grabbed me by my lapels hmm. and made me listen. And I was like, wow, what is going on here? I'm one of those guys that the lyrics are the last thing I listen to. It's I think I, I don't know if that's a musician take on music or not. I listen from the bottom up. I listen to the groove, then the harmony, then the melody. And I can I can work on songs in my studio and I'll be quoting lyrics back to the singer. They go, that's not what the lyrics are. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm not really clear what you're saying here, because <laughs> to me, it's more of the magic of the song. You know, I always say poetry is words. Music is a combination of groove and melody and harmony and all that. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was, Take Me to the Alley had that and it just grabbed me by the lapels. And I, I stopped what I was doing and looked up like a. A deer in the headlights. I was like, what is going on here? And it's kind of a jazzy thing. Then I started listening to the lyrics and, it, and I investigated. And this guy said, because he's saying, take me to the alley. He said he wrote this when the Pope came to New York City. Hmm. And they were, he was watching them like clean up the city and get everything nice and shiny. And, and he's going, they're going to be surprised when he says, take me to the alley. Hmm. And he's talking about, you know, it's kind of a, whether it would be the king or Jesus or whoever in the story, you know, they fix up everything and lay the the golden streets down and then in this song he says they're going to be surprised and he says take me to the alley 
Take Me to the Afflicted. It's really a short song lyrically. I think there might only be one verse and a couple of choruses. Mm -hmm. The textures grabbed me. The melody grabbed me. The, his, the sound of his voice. And then when I dug even deeper and got into the lyrics and they were so uh, spiritual and uh, enlightened, I was like, wow, this tune. Because if, you know, I date myself by most of these tunes, I'm telling you, are in the 70s or the 60s. And this yeah. tune was two years ago. But it oh. just, it's 2017. It's a brand new thing. And it's funny. I heard the tune and I was, and then I played it for my wife and she uh, said, well, he's at Carnegie Hall next week. So we bought tickets and went to see him at Carnegie Hall. And it was one little uh, bit of trivia. His piano player turns out to be a guy from North Carolina that I knew in North Carolina who had actually played at my high school prom. So no here we go. way. What are we talking? 40 years later, and I'm at Carnegie Hall watching a guy play piano with Gregory Porter who played piano at my high school prom. That is hilarious. You know, I've become good friends on uh, Facebook and, you know, social media, and he's he said he spends about 75% of the year on the road with Gregory, and uh, he's still out there doing it. I highly recommend checking out Gregory Porter, if, you know, if you love that kind of baritone soul voice of Barry White or Bill Withers, but with a hint of jazz, check out Gregory Porter, just an amazing performer. Oh, I definitely will. I definitely will, because I do like that. Okay, so you are going to finish up today, Jeff, with uh, a Christmas tune. Fra yeah, Frank, yeah. Frank Sinatra and Silent Night. And specifically the version from 2004. This, very much like the Greg Reporter tune, I get very emotional when I listen to it. And I, I had my satellite radio on one time, and I had it on the Christmas channel. I mm -hmm. love listening to Christmas music. It's so lush. It takes me back, you know, probably the warm, fuzzy time of childhood. But also just the orchestrations alone, whether it's Nat King Cole or Frank Sinatra or the soaring strings and the horns and the woodwinds and uh, it just sounds so rich it's like listening to a symphony mm -hmm. which i always joke with people post holidays I always kind of have withdrawals because i go back listening to pop music yeah. and it always sounds a little flat this version of silent night i remember sounded totally vulnerable like he was barely getting the song out and so i went and researched it and i found out that he had recorded it for a children's charity just with his son his son had played piano and they went to a little home studio his son played piano he sang it See, he sang it in 91. He died in 98. Mm -hmm. So he sang it, you know, seven, eight years before he died. But uh, this track just kind of was buried. And then they discovered it after he died. And they brought in this arranger, Johnny Mandel, who is a brilliant arranger. Mm -hmm. he, he wrote the theme to MASH, if you're familiar with that song, yeah. Suicide is Painless, The Shadow of Your Smile. He won the Grammy for the uh, Natalie Cole and Nat King Cole, Unforgettable, when they did oh. that whole thing. They paired them together and he had written the orchestrations so yeah. anyway after frank's death they take this recording of frank singing to a piano to johnny and he fleshes out for full orchestra they put an orchestra together with a lot of frank's old musicians and go in the studio and sync their recording to frank's recording 10 oh. years after his death or whatever so six years after his death i guess but uh it's so beautiful the the string arrangement johnny mandel's arranging work frank's totally brittle vulnerable voice you know, the, the woodwinds, there's harp, there's there's like a bass clarinet. It just hits this low note before the second verse that just sends chills down my spine every time I hear it. And uh, wow. uh, I've, I'm grateful to that I can get just as excited from a wah-wah guitar and a bass clarinet, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a great video actually on YouTube about the making of this song. It's about an eight, nine minute video where it shows everybody getting back together in the studio and recording, overdubbing their parts after Frank's death. Just a brilliant brilliant thing and hearing frank so soft and quiet to me he's one of the greatest singers ever because mm -hmm. you can hear the emotion in his voice yes and uh 
when I watch these singing talents, you know, the competitions, the voice or American mm-hmm. Idol, see incredible technique and acrobatics. But a lot of times there's a complete lack of emotional connection. Mm-hmm. They're so talented. They're not realizing what they're singing or why they're singing it. Mm-hmm. And I joke to you all the time. I say, how far do you think Bob Dylan or Rod Stewart would get if he was on American Idol? They'd kick him <laughs> first hour. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, Jagger. They would never make it. Neil Young. The emotional thing, I, I remember reading a story one time, that, uh, old soul singer Sam Cooke, he and Bobby Womack, another soul, a younger soul singer at the time, mm-hmm. uh, were listening to music, and Sam Cooke played some Bob Dylan for Bobby Womack. And he said, Bobby Womack shaking his head saying, man, that guy can't sing at all. <laughs> and Sam Cooke said to him, he said, we're not listening for singing, we're listening for truth. Oh, I like that. So that's what I try to do. I try to listen for the truth in all music. You know, there's an old joke. There's two kinds of music, good and bad. Yeah. And I feel like the music I listen to, whether it's Debussy to Coltrane to James Brown to Nirvana, there's just a, there's an, a thread of truth running through all that music. Yeah. You know? Whether it's Hank Williams or Jimi Hendrix, it all sounds the same to me. It sounds like it's come from that same place of honesty. Yeah, that is so great. I, I really like that. Well, that was a good way to finish, Jeff. You're welcome on this show anytime, sir. Yep, great. Well, I've probably got about 700 tunes. Like I said, just whittling it down, I just didn't, tr- I didn't think about it too much because it's like when people say, what's your favorite Beatles tune? You're going, how long do you have? Let's <laughs> talk about this or that one. And I feel the same way about Stevie Wonder and Prince. It's like, you know, I could do my favorite 50 Prince tunes or Stevie Wonder tunes. So, uh, Oh, yeah. But, uh, well, I just keep listening for the truth. Well, you have to, right? You have to. I've done a couple of these with with Rob, and uh, you know my last one with him was in New York. So the next time I'm down there, I'm going to look you up and, uh, and maybe okay, we, definitely we, we can do one. We'll hang live. out. Yeah, for sure. I love talking music. It's like after decades in the music industry, I, I say to people, say the industry has me a little beat down, but listening to music is as exciting as ever to me. And Good. That that's great because it becomes your job, and so you have to trade in a little bit of the wonder and the awe to go and do it every day. So. Uh, people are a little surprised when you go, oh, I'd ready, I wouldn't mind a change of scenery or a change of pace. But I tell you what, boy, I start listening to songs that, you know, formed my, my style and my life and even new songs. And I go, boy, I could listen to music all day long. Mm-hmm. Me too. That's great. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really enjoyed talking with you. Sure. And uh, if people want to pick up a copy of my book, Do Stand So Close, they can read about my crazy year with Sting going up and down the ladder of success. Yes, I fully recommend that. The book is called Do Stand So Close, My Improbable Adventure as Sting's Guitarist. It's available at Amazon. It's probably the easiest way to get it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. All right, Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you for your time, and uh, thanks for including me. It's my pleasure. I, I really okay. enjoyed the chat. Okay, me too. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Jeff Campbell. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.